This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time, and this is a Hack the Craft episode. For those who are listening on the podcast, we're going to recap where we were the last two sessions on this and what we're doing today. So we've been working over a piece that Steve wrote. It's the opening chapter, second scene, an opening chapter to his manuscript. And the first session, we discussed dialogue and the critical factors that dialogue has to have, which is establishing and revealing character and informing the reader and adding new information and driving the plot forward, preferably both. And then we discussed, we read the opening scene and not the, sorry, we read the scene that we'll be working on. And then I highlighted the two main issues that I had with it uh, from an overview story perspective. And the first was that I felt that the main character could be a little bit more likable, and I was going to work on that. And the second was that the scene, as it's currently written, didn't feel like it had a purpose, that it, it was just sort of contrived and there, and that the dialogue and it Everything wasn't giving us any new information. So the interchange between the characters was fun and it was cute. But from a story perspective, that's where the issue came in. So and we talked a bit about what how all of that plays out in the creation of a story. So if you didn't catch last week's episode, I highly recommend that you go back and you listen to that first before continuing on here. or You might be a little bit lost. So the next phase in this is we're going to now reread the piece with my comments line by line, my thoughts as I'm reading it. We're not going to do any actual fixing, but we're going to be looking at the specific things that made me feel that the scene didn't have a purpose or that I felt the dialogue could be better or just things that made Reggie's character not so likable. And then all the little tweaky things that um, when in terms of where the character's body is in time and space and all the stuff that we talk about in our Hack the Craft episodes of how to build a scene and strengthen your writing. So without further ado, we are going to go now to um, to read this scene with my comments. And I just have to get there on the screen. Here, I'm going to, I'm, there's going to be a lot of interruption on my part because I'm just going to break this down as we go. So the original opened with, the door opened into the foyer of an elegantly decorated room and Cassandra Pennington. We all have a type when it comes to the opposite sex. I always thought mine started with a desire to laugh and an unwillingness to take oneself too seriously. Beyond that, I was partial to different body styles, heights, and hair colors. But what I saw when I stepped out of the elevator must have been what I'd been genetically wired to desire. A woman dressed comfortably in faded jeans and a loose white t-shirt, golden hair piled on top of her head and a face that appeared makeup free of makeup. She was about two inches shorter than my six foot two, and her bare feet sported bright red toenails. A smudge of bright blue paint on her nose completed the picture. So these are the opening paragraphs. And as we've learned prior, there are critical elements that every paragraph opening, every scene opening needs to have. And so we're going to look at those first to see 
as, as sort of a map to see what we might be missing to just sort of get us started here. So the first thing that every scene needs to know all the time is whose head we're in. And this is well established. This is a single point of view book. We're in Reggie's head. There's no question there. The other thing the reader needs to always know at all times and all places is where the character's body is within space and time. So in this scene, we know he's in the elevator, but we have no sense of where that elevator is in relation to anything else. So this is going to need to be fixed. The next thing we need in a scene opening or a chapter opening is atmosphere and mood, and this is missing. The next thing we need is the point of view character's frame of mind. And we have this in terms of what he thinks about Cassie, but we get it before he sees what he sees, so it becomes noise. This needs to be fixed. More importantly, we're missing the character's frame of mind in regards to the greater plot. This needs to be fixed. The fifth important thing is who the character, who the other characters are. We have this. That's great. The sixth thing is where those bodies are in time and space. Now, we know that Cassie is outside the elevator, but we have no sense of that elevator in relation to anything else. Also, it says that the door opens to the foyer of an elegantly decorated room. Is this a foyer or is it an elegant room? Because foyers generally tend to open to how in the interior of a house or it's the foyer is the elegantly elegantly decorated room. So we need to get that fixed up. It needs tweaking. Um, another thing in these opening sentences is just a word quibble. Uh, but it's worth pointing out because that's what tutorial is for, is that this phrase, I was partial to different body styles, heights, and hair colors, that's an example of details so vague that it becomes noise. Like, it can mean anything. There's no, and I think it, I don't know if it's meant to say I was impartial because it's so vague that you would think that it would say it was he was impartial. So I don't know. That's just one of those little quirky things like word choices matter. If we're going to say that somebody's partial to something, we want to actually state what they are partial to. So anyway, there's that. Okay, so um, continuing on with the comment is that the biggest issue with this opening is we're plunged into Reggie's immediate thoughts and feelings without being privy to what he's reacting to. The second may be more of a personal taste thing, but to me, Reggie's immediate response comes across as being self-absorbed and objectifying rather than smitten. And I think we want to, I mean, to feel objectifying, to fe objectification is a... Um, it's it's a bit like, you know, is the water too hot or not hot? Everybody has a different taste for that. But we just want to be sensitive to, we don't want to over-feminize him, but we want to be sensitive to our female readers as well, because that's just, that's what makes good writing, is not trying not to annoy anybody unnecessarily. So unless it was key to his character, which it's not, um, then we can work with and play with it. If that's who he was as a character, who just saw women as just objects, then that's different. Then we leave it because that's who he is. But he's not. So we don't want our words to that we're using to misconstrue what he actually is or who he actually is. So we're going to just be careful about that. So the next little segment of, spe of, uh, of this text continues with Cassie speaking. You are Reggie Carpenter, aren't you? She asked, a puzzled look on her face. Oops, I'd apparently been struck dumb at the sight of her. Yes, yes, sorry, long drive. You must be Cassandra. I am, and you got here more quickly than I'd expected. 
She pointed to the patio. Please make yourself comfortable outside. Would you like coffee or some iced tea? Tea would be great, I said. So here's my comments on that little sec section. This round of dialogue doesn't establish or reveal character or inform the reader or add new plot information or drive the plot. Why? Because one, Cassie's standing there waiting for him. Therefore, she's neither surprised to see him, nor is there any question about who he is. Two, he's been sent directly to her floor. Um, that was outside the text, but it basically said the elevator sent him to the 23rd floor. So it's no stretch to assume that the woman standing there waiting as the doors open is the one he's come to see. So under these conditions, this dialogue doesn't add to the plot or provide new information. It just makes them both look kind of dumb and socially stiff and awkward because they're, they're stating the obvious. Okay, I mean, if I could, if I could just it. jump in. If I could just jump yeah. in here for a minute. Um, what I was trying to accomplish with Reggie is essentially that he was struck dumb by the sight of her. Right. And so his reaction was one of being struck dumb. Um, hers was like, are you Reggie Carpenter? Like, why are you here kind of thing? Right. That's so what I was going for. So I, 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 I totally obviously didn't hit the mark, but that's what I was going for. <laughs> get that, which you're going to be very pleased to see in the next edition. Um, the thing is, we're not privy to Cassandra's thoughts, right? So if she's like kind of mystified at why he's just standing there mute, we don't get that because we're not privy to her thoughts. And it comes after him. It come, Her question to him comes before his saying that he's struck dumb at the side of her. So it's it's an order thing. So if we wanted to keep this exactly as it was, we would have to reorder the elements so that we are aware of him being struck dumb first before we get the puzzled look on her face. Otherwise, it just looks, it reads without any extra context that she's confused about who this person is, but she's there waiting for him. And so it just becomes awkward and makes them both look kind of stupid. So the next um, thing reads, I walked out into a perfect November afternoon where I tried to gather my wits, which had scattered about the foyer when I saw Cassandra. I took a deep breath, inhaled the briny ocean air, and focused on organizing my overstimulated mind. I walked the length of a large patio, which was furnished with expensively I can't pronounce it, upholstered outdoor furniture. A table with six chairs sat on one end, while two comfortable lounge chairs sat on the other. So here's my thoughts on that. His body just goes directly from the elevator to walking out into the afternoon. So we have no idea where his where the character's body is in time, space, or place, which means his body's now disembodied, which means we have no mental movie. So this is a really good description of the outside, though. So my goal on this little segment is going to be tweaked to tighten it and keep all the elements in one place. And I need to get his body from one place to the next in a way that actually adds depth of character or gives the reader some information and doesn't we like there's enough description here already. So anything that I do, my goal is not to add a ton more description unless it it can be done in a way that brings the story to life visually in the reader's mind. Um, I do have a, okay, so the next, the next um, sentence, the next 
paragraph says, I stepped through the chair, the chairs and took a seat at the table. My eyes were pointed to the Atlantic, but what I saw instead was Cassandra, paint on her nose, looking expectantly at me. Could the fates have actually delivered me to the perfect woman after I finished listening to that audiobook? No way. I was in deep trouble here. So my uh, little wording quibble here is only in science fiction do humans actually step through solid objects. So I think what we're looking for is threaded between the chairs. And that's like, I'm, I'm a, I mess up with stuff like that all the time, too. It's the type of thing that you just, you know, you're in the story and you're just writing and you just don't see it. So like I have beta readers and copy editors catching that stuff in me all the time. Okay, so... My concern for that paragraph in general is that we already know that he likes her. So this paragraph to me, it comes across as overkill or navel gazing in total. Like I'm looking at this from a scene like this paragraph in isolation is fine, but we just got through this dialogue that didn't actually move the story forward and we got him to the patio, but now he's thinking about her again. And to me, that's just overkill. Um, and I'm also concerned that uh, so soon after he's, you know, gone into his thoughts about being genetically wired to desire this woman, that now he's saying things like, you know, could the fates delivered me to the perfect woman? It feels a little bit from a, a female perspective. And again, this is just, is the water too hot? Is it not too hot? This is not going to bother everybody. But I'm trying to be sensitive to what, re, how readers might be interpreting it. And if it doesn't need to be there, we can tone it down a little bit. It feels like it could be a bit entitled or predatory. Like, he likes her, so now she's the perfect woman for him. And that that can put some women off. So really this whole paragraph could be deleted without costing anything. The part about the audiobook is really good because it, we like to loop back like that. And if we, we show a scene or something earlier to keep looping back to it is really a way to deepen and strengthen the writing. So that is great. And we're probably, we're going to want to keep that, but maybe not right here, maybe a little bit later in the scene um, or not the scene in, in a coming scene or something. So that's excellent. Just everything else that's with it probably could be sacrificed without costing us anything. So the next paragraph reads, a few minutes later, she reappeared with a trace, tray of iced tea and sat it in the middle of the table. The blue paint was gone and the hair atop her head was slightly better organized, so perhaps she wanted to make an impression as well. One could hope. My concern with this is he's projecting his infatuation onto her. There could be any reason for anyone to realize they have paint on their nose or their hair is messy and get cleaned up because someone arrived sooner than expected and it has nothing whatsoever to do with being attracted to the other person. So. Anyone who's ever experienced this, and, and I have experienced people projecting their emotions or their feelings onto me and expecting me to reciprocate in kind, um, that can be really off-putting. It's not a cute or desirable trait. And we can cut this without sacrificing anything critical as well. Now, I need to, to reiterate that just because I'm talking about cutting these things doesn't mean that Reggie in the final needs to have no infatuation with this woman. He is clearly going to be infatuated with her, but we're just going to try and tone it down a little and, and have the words that he uses make him 
feel, make it desirable, make him look more desirable and not like he's just glomming onto this person and, and losing all sense of mental faculty. So now is Cassandra speaking. She, uh, she spoke, Reggie, I assume that's short for Reginald. For my parents, maybe, but not for me. So this is one of the dialogue issues. We're back to the dialogue issue where she carries the tray in and out. And out of the blue, she just asks the stranger about his name. So to me, this exchange feels stilted and forced because this isn't really how socially adept people interact. Um, and we try, I really try as hard as possible to make the characters living and breathing and up until this point in the the text, they've not spoken since she said, you know, make yourself at home. And before that, all it was, was, um, you know, are you Reggie? Oh, yes. Sorry. You know, long trip. So there's really been no information offered. And the information that we're getting here, uh, Reggie is short for Reginald and for his parents and not for me, this whole, this and then the coming exchange about names, that's really cool. It's important, you know, to know we're being informed what Reginald's, what Reggie's full name is. It's great. I just think that we could find a way to do it that it doesn't absorb so much of the conversation and just is a little bit more natural in the back and forth exchange between people. So the next line is, I watched her hands as she poured, her nails were unpolished, and her ring finger was gloriously bare. And I love this. Her ring finger was gloriously bare. I think that's a fantastic use of observation that if we tone the rest down a bit, it works really well in a non-creepy, you know, just it's 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 endearing. It can be endearing if it's, it's done really well. And that's what we're looking for is to make Reggie likable and endearing. So... She says, why do you say that, she asked. He says, sorry, automatic reaction. Yes, it's short for Reginald. I'm officially Reginald Randolph Carter II, but I prefer Reggie. I see, she said. I've got kind of the same thing going on, same thing going. Professionally, I go by Cassandra because it fits the work I do, but I prefer Cassie. So this is more dialogue about their names. It's not building their character. It's not moving the plot forward. So it feels like filler. The key information that we need to keep and convey is Reggie's full name and that Cassandra prefers Cassie. So the next thing she says is, and speaking of professional obligations, you said you had some questions about some work I did for Mrs. Rudd. Now this is moving the plot forward, but it doesn't have any character to it. So if the intent of it is to sort of establish sort of this arm's length formality, that's getting missed because it just comes across as wooden enforced. And, and like, I, if we read that paragraph in, in total, I see, she said, I've got kind of the same thing going. Professionally, I go by Cassandra because it fits the work I do, but I prefer Cassie. And speaking of professional obligations, you said you had some questions about some work I did for Mrs. Rudd. So it's just, it's this sort of awkward segue from chit-chat and non-eventful stuff to, bam, what do you want to know? So the next sentence says, she stirred sugar into her iced tea while I gathered my thoughts. And this is a wording quibble. When we word things like this, where, um, it, it, where she did this while I did this, 
it actually reverses the order of whose head we're in. So it, it makes it sound like she's killing time waiting for him to gather his thoughts. So it would really be more like I gathered my thoughts while she stirred sugar into her iced tea, but it would need to be tweaked to, to read properly. So that's just something, a little hack thing to keep in mind of the order of elements. It counts like just like we order sentences to keep the information in the right order. It also happens when we need to do this is happening while that is happening. The next thing, as he's gathering his thoughts right, he says, it wouldn't do to come across as accusatory. Now this, to me, comes out of the blue. Why, why would he accuse her of what? Does he think she's guilty of something? And there's so much to unpack here with that one sentence. It's just sort of like a bomb going off in the middle of everything. Why would he be accusing her? And the reason we don't know is because we've not been privy to any of his thoughts up until this point. So if he has felt like, oh, she was the last one who uh, appraised this card, maybe she has something to do with the fact that it was missing. We don't know that because we can't read his mind. So in this context is like a bomb that's just gone off. He says, I'm actually looking into the baseball card, the Mickey Mantle card in Mr. Red's office. Do you remember the card? She looked up from her stirring. Of course. So to me, this creates a little bit of a, a like a continuity or a contrived issue because the appraisal happened over a year ago. And she'd already said that the work keeps her busy. So what are the odds that she clearly remembers one random piece out of hundreds. Now, we need her to remember this piece. So I we're just I'm going to tweak that a little bit to give a reason for her to remember it so that it just doesn't come at us out of the blue like that and feel very it's just sort of sudden. So the next thing Reggie says is, well, he, he being Mr. Rudd, decided to sell it and found that it wasn't as valuable as he'd been led to believe. So he's being evasive here. He's I think this is related to his thought that it wouldn't do to come off as accusatory. So rather than just coming right out and say, saying, hey, the card's a fake, he's sort of dancing around the edges here. So if she's a suspect in his mind already at this point, we need to get that established in advance. Otherwise, this is just incongruent and confusing, and it feels very out of place. But it doesn't feel out of place to the story so much as it feels out of place to the character, because it's it's so the character is the source of these thoughts. So we're like trying to understand this character and we're not we don't have the tools to actually understand what's going on in his head. So the next sentence reads, yes, Elizabeth told me that when I called her to confirm that it was OK to speak with you. What questions do you have? Now, this is really, really important. That phrase, Elizabeth told me that when I called her to confirm that it was okay to speak with you, that is solving some plot contrivance issues that could arise if it wasn't there. So it's really good, but it's backwards. Reggie is here on his client's behalf. Elizabeth Rudd gave him Cassie's number. Elizabeth should have called ahead 
before Reggie tried to make the appointment. That's how these things work. Or given Cassie a heads up that, hey, I'm going to have somebody call you, it doesn't happen where you get a call out of the blue. Or if it does happen, it's going to put you on edge as the receiver of this call. Like, who the hell is this? Um, and, and then you got to go f- taking your time to go call other people and try and, and get this resolved. That's not a good first step, first foot forward. So we need this information. We need to reorder it so that she's more saying, yes, Elizabeth told me that when she called me to ask me to speak with you, that type of a thing. So the next thing she says is what questions you ha- do you have? And this it does move the plot forward, but it's abrupt, so it feels feels really stilted. And also, as we'll see with this, next, I'm just going to move right into the next one because it covers both of these at the same time. His thoughts, Reggie's thoughts say, I was pleased and a little surprised that she wasn't put off by the reason for my visit. Well, he called ahead to make this appointment. So why would Cassie agree to meet with a total stranger at her home, no less, without knowing the reason up front. So this makes him look dumb. And I'm sorry, because Reggie, I know you're not dumb. And neither is Steve. And I don't want any of this to make it look like I'm picking on Steve or saying that he, you know, just because he used these words in these te- in this text does not mean that Steve has bad thoughts or whatever. It's just wording. It's where you're trying to, this is writing is a struggle to get the right words to communicate the right things on the page. That's all that we're talking about. So Reggie is not stupid. And and I want to try and help smarten him up because as a outside, from an outside perspective, I can see things even that I wouldn't see in my own writing. Happens to all of us. So here Reggie says, well, the obvious, I guess, was the card you saw a year ago worth $2.8 million. And this is sort of points us back to what I was saying in the overview where I felt like the things that he was asking were redundant. The conversation wasn't really giving us new information because Reggie already knows the card was appraised at $850,000 because the appraisal was in the file that he looked at. And it's, it's stated in the text before we ever get here that the card was worth appraised for $850,000. This $2.8 million number is the reason that Mr. Rudd decided to sell the card is a friend of his had seen a similar card go up for auction for $2.8 million, and he decided to sell his, which is when he found out that it was fake. But Reggie doesn't know what Cassie knows or doesn't know. So he knows that Cassie um, appraised the card for $850,000. Why is he asking her about the $2.8 million? Has he assumed she's randomly aware that a card similar to the one she appraised over a year ago recently sold for 2.8? And so this is a trick question. Is he asking for a new assessment of value? We have no insight into what he's thinking or where he's coming from. And without some indication that there's a strategy to the question, it just makes him look too stupid to ask helpful and informative questions. So it might be make some kind of sense if at least he said, do you think the card you saw a year ago would be worth $2.8 million today? But he doesn't. And then she pulls out her phone and taps for several seconds. And she says, it was a little over a year ago. My appraisal was for $850,000, she said, and she handed me the phone. Well, this is filler that not only repeats what Reggie already knows, 
but what the reader already knows. So what is it about this conversation that was worth a 90-minute trip? All of this, he could have asked her over the phone. Now, a reason to want to ask her in person is to actually see her facial expressions, her body reactions, especially if he thinks that she's a suspect in some way. But we don't know that because we haven't been told that. So without being privy to the background thoughts, it just comes across as just filler and conversation. And it's not really giving us anything new. And that's what's giving this scene its lack of purpose. Why are we here? What are we actually here to learn? So she took a tip of her seat. (laughs) Yeah, that was really smooth. She took a sip of her iced tea and tucked a leg underneath herself on the chair. Do you understand what an appraisal is, Reggie? Perhaps not, but I'm willing to learn. There was small movement at the left side of her mouth, almost the beginning of a smile, but it disappeared quickly. The terminology in my business can be confusing. When I appraise items for insurance or other purposes, my appraisal assumes the piece being appraised is authentic and as described. She looked down at her phone, swiped the screen a few times before continuing. The card was presented as an original Mickey Mantle rookie card, part of a set distributed by a company called Tops in 1952. It was described as in perfect condition, and I saw nothing to indicate that it was not in perfect condition. So for this, I commented out, this, this is the information we've been waiting for. So my goal is going to be to reframe this entire conversation around the information that matters. Next sentence says, she appeared utterly unconcerned while educating me and either didn't feel I was questioning her work or she didn't care. So this takes us back to what is really going on in Richie's mind about her, because first he says he didn't want to come across as accusatory. Then he asks her these questions that are kind of like, what? And now he's saying she appears utterly concerned. So why would she be concerned or feel like he was questioning her? She was the one who offered the information in the first place. She's the one who offered to tell him what an appraisal was. And so this just, it feels confusing about Reggie as a character. Why is he asking these questions? So next he asks her, how did you determine the value, I asked. Well, that, I, as a reader, do not understand the purpose of that question. Like, it's it's redundant to him as a character. Does it matter how she came to the value, she's already just told him that she assumes for her job automatically takes for granted that it's an original. So if the piece is an original and that's the real, um, if it's assumed that the piece is original and that's really critical information that he knows, how does this question play into it? Now, I think it's because we want to explain to the reader a little bit about the art world and how art appraisals are done. And that's really important. I don't think that this is that information that the reader is looking for. And the reason I don't think that is because as I was reading this and I was feeling this sense of like, this isn't telling me anything. I don't know. I went and looked it up and I started reading about art appraisal. I'm like, oh, my God, there's so much fascinating information in here that actually pertains to the story. This is just like skipping over it. And I'm like, okay, all right. 
this is not, these are not the drones you're seeking or clones you're seeking or however that phrase from Star Wars goes. <laughs> this is not it. But it says, another swipe of her screen, it's a little like appraising a house. I looked at the last few sales, made some adjustments for inflation in the sports mem memorabilia market and came up with a price. The last sale was nearly three years ago and it was for just under 600000 Now, I have not read the full manuscript. So it could very well be that some of these details are foreshadowing something else. It could be. And I apologize profusely for saying that this is kind of redundant and and I, I may be wrong, in which case we're going to have to pull some of this back in later. But right here and right now, it's like I was saying, there's a lot about the world of art appraisal that would be really interested and informative. And this just kind of feels like a shrug. It feels like filler. It just, it's a whatever, you know, and those are, that's not going to be interesting, I think, to the average reader, but we can find stuff that is. So now Reggie says, you said the terminology can be confusing. Is there another term for confirming the value of something? Cassie says, yes, that's called authentication. And depending on the item, it's a much more expensive operation. I expect that Mr. Rudd's buyer paid for authentication, and that's where the discrepancy turned up. Uh, Reggie says, could they have hired you for authentication rather than an appraisal? Yes, but I'd have hired someone else to handle the card. I can authenticate artwork. That's my background. But very few people want or need that level of detail for insurance purposes. Most high-end art transfers happen through a few large auction houses, and they have their own people for that kind of work. And this also is the information that we need. We need this. We want this. But as it's currently written, the, the interchange between the two characters feels a little bit forced and interrogative, I can't pronounce it, like an interrogation. Um, and that's because he's asking a question, she's dumping information at him. He's asking a question, she's dumping information at him. So my goal is going to be to interweave this part that's so awesome with the other part a little bit above that had more information that we really needed and just kind of compress it so that we can avoid any redundancies and it'll just flow with the give and take of natural conversation and it'll sort of bring the characters to life. So the next uh, paragraph says, I heard the words, but their meaning battled for cycles in my brain, which was more focused on capturing the way her lips moved when she spoke. Now, this is saying the quiet part out loud. And it's cute in a way, but I think we should save it for when their relationship is a little more established and we know that she likes him too. Otherwise, it can feel a little objectifying. Next, it says, I flash back on the last time I'd been this distracted talking to a woman, a girl actually, Pam Martin, after eighth grade science. I'd spent weeks working up the nerve to ask her to the spring dance. I'd actually started to pop the question when I stuttered and froze. I actually stopped talking and stood there looking like a complete dolt. Humiliating, especially after your twin sister finds out and spreads it all over the school. I wrestled my wandering thoughts back to the business at hand. So this might be useful backstory at some point, but here all it does is keep us returning to Reggie's infatuation instead of focusing on the actual story at hand and his purpose for coming to Miami. So I kind of want to pocket this where we, I, if it was my work, I would move it to a separate file 
and just hold on to it. I don't want to delete it because it might be necessary. It might be really useful elsewhere. But right here, we really need to keep the story moving. And we need to focus this scene on what he's actually doing here. And um, we already know he's infatu infatuated. So we we don't, and we know he has issues, you know, maintaining relationships and stuff. So, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, but um, we don't, we might not need this here. So then he asks another uh, interrogation question. He says, how are you hired for your job? Now, this is kind of a, a little hack the craft thing all on its own. So um, just here's a, a, a trick, okay? To soften the sense of interrogation, you'd need something between wrestling his thoughts back to business at hand and the actual question. Some form of inner dialogue that relates to his frame of mind and why he wants to know. So the strange thing about inner dialogue is even if the question itself is worded exactly the same, by getting into his head about why beforehand, it refocuses the attention so that the question itself feels like a natural byproduct of those thoughts instead of an out-of-the-blue demand for information. I think we might touch on this a little bit more, but if not, we will. it's too much to go into that with examples here for this show, but I just want to put that out there, that that is how you soften interrogatory questions. I will learn how to pronounce that word one day. And it's not by putting something else in front of the question. It's by answering why he's asking the question. Inner dialogue that relates to the why of why this question is being asked before the question is asked. Don't ask me why it works. It just does. It, it, it's something about the way the reader's framing it inside their head. It will soften that to where it doesn't feel like a direct, super pointed question. Okay, so the next one, she tapped and swiped at her phone for several seconds. Continental Insurance, they hired for me, hired me for this job, for the job. Is that the norm in your world? The insurance company is your client, I asked. She fluttered a hand, mostly yes. I do occasionally work for individual clients, but I primarily work for insurance companies. There are a few of us around the country who do this, and I'm fortunate to be in Florida where there's plenty of work. It keeps me busy. I looked out from her condo, and it seems to be lucrative. She smiled, but didn't respond. So this continues sort of the interrogation, and if this was real life, it would be like one of the most incredibly socially awkward conversations, because it's just question, answer, question, answer. And then he kind of insults her, in a way, by saying it seems to be lucrative, which maybe he's implying that she isn't making her money legitimately, I don't know. It just kind of comes out comes out like that, which is, I don't know, to some people to, to point out money just can be, it's one, you know, what are the three, three topics you don't talk about in polite company? It's money, religion, and uh, politics. So this, this is one of those, right? So it's kind of awkward. So now he, he, in his thoughts, he says, if I were an insurance company, I'd want her to stay busy and to deliver every report in person. So this is more of the saying the quiet part out loud, and it's the lead up to a sexual harassment lawsuit. So forgive me, it's also really sexist. 
And I get that it's biological for men and to some extent women to think reductively around those who they find appealing, but it feels really shitty to be on the receiving end of it. And unfortunately, that's a really common experience for women in the workplace. So I would really advise treading lightly here. And by no means do I want to change Reggie's nature or feminize or emasculate him, nor do I want to deny reality for the sake of political correctness or whatever. But unless you want him to be off-putting and unlikable to half your audience, there's got to be some sort of self-awareness or self-reflection that accompanies thoughts like these, or else he comes across as like having the depth of a puddle in a terrarium, and that is not who he is. So this idea that he's attracted to her and that he would, you know, want her to deliver every report in person, that's great, but just not really something you want him to articulate like that. So we're going to work on that a little bit. Um, Reggie's a man's man. I do not want to wussify him at all. And I know these types of thoughts are so common. It's just they're not usually articulated. So anyway, he says, what kind of supporting information do you provide your clients? And she held up her phone. You saw the report I delivered to them. I think the client gets a copy as well. And I provide several photographs of each item on the schedule. So this is more of the interrogation. And it's also redundant because he's already seen the file with the appraisal and everything the Rudds had on the card. So her answer essentially points out how redundant his question is. Like, why did he ask a stupid question? Like, is there a reason behind it? We aren't privy to his non-creepy thoughts. And sorry, I'm so sorry. This is a horrible thing to call him creepy. He's not creepy. It just some of the things he's saying makes him seem a little creepy. But was this meant as a trick question? Like he already has this information. Why is he asking this? And and the reader knows he has this information. So the reader's going to be asking this. So then her non-answer creates a secondary issue because the flow thus far has been very direct, which is he asks a question, she responds, she asks her a question, he, he asks a question, she responds, and it's kind of set the expectation for an informative answer, but she doesn't even get into that. So the whole thing just feels like, what's the purpose here? What is the point in this conversation? We're not, there's no, you, if there's a dance between the characters, if there's a, like, a give and take or a tug of war, we're not privy to it because we're not actually inside anybody's head. It's just, it's like we're reading a transcript of, of what's being said. So she holds up her phone. You saw the report. You know, I provide photographs. That That's redundant. We, we already know that. And then he says, does that mean you took pictures of the Mickey Mantle card while you were there? This is important. It's critical. It's, so probably, I'm going to guess, the entire exchange leading up to this, before this, is leading into this question. That's our payoff question right there. Um, and so we can we can rearrange it a little to, to cut out the redundancies so that we emphasize this information here that she has pictures of the card. So then he's... He says, uh, uh, of, she says, of course, would you like me to send them to you? And he says, do you have copies I could look at? And this feels like a contest to see who can force the other person to ask the most obvious question. So my goal is going to be keeping the essence of what matters most in this dialogue and then restructuring everything around it.
She shook her hand and her eyes flashed amusement. No, I don't keep photographs lying around. My business is mostly digital, but I can email the images to you. They're very high resolution and should answer any questions you may have. This here, they're very high resolution and should answer any questions you may have. That is also really, really important. The rest is kind of redundant. I gave her a business card and stood, needing to get out before I did or said something stupid. So that, to me, I was just like, oh, no, Reggie, no, 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 no. Because unless he did or said something horribly embarrassing, some horribly embarrassing thing, the normal response from a guy who's infatuated like this with a woman is to want to linger, not to run away. So this is really confusing. It, it makes him seem emotionally and socially on par with a 12-year-old boy bumping into a secret crush. But Reggie is ex-military. He's a private in investigator. To be any good at his job means having a degree of confidence and emotional intelligence. He does struggle with maintaining romantic relationships past the few-month mark. And that might be what this dialogue is trying to reaffirm or point back to or reestablish. But not being great at relationships is different than being so uncomfortable around a woman he feels the need to escape her. So uncertainty and self-awareness of flaws, that's good. Being creepy or obsessive or inept, that's not good. But character inconsistency, that makes them unlikable. And so here we had this character through this whole scene focusing back at back and back and back on how much he likes this woman and completely missing the important parts about the card or at least not even reflecting on them internally. And now he's like, I need to get away from her before I do or say something stupid. And you're like, what? So even in that, he's not consistent. So I, I think this is meant like sort of as a transition to, to move this, because this is closing out the scene, to, to end it and find a way to transition him out of there. But so I, it might not have even been intentional. It might be throwaway lines. But because the scene has focused so much so far on his being enamored with Cassie, that now what may have once been a throwaway line to just kind of transition us into getting him out of the room has so much weight that it never would have under other circumstances. So I thanked her for tea, and she led me back to the foyer. I do a lot of work in Elan, she said, with one hand on the elevator button. I'll give you a call next time. Maybe we can do lunch or something. I stammered some type of embarrassing reply and saw a smile that lit her entire face just before the door closed. Smooth, Reggie, very smooth. So the part about her being in Elan is really important, and I think we can find sort of an organic way to relay it and... Um, not make Reggie be embarrassed or stumble or whatever, no matter how awkward he gets around women, we kind of want to make him uh, attractive in, in that sense. So that's, I'm afraid for Steve to come online now because it, God, it feels like I've just like torn this thing to shreds. But I'm not tearing it to shreds. I'm looking at it from a really critical eye, from a story perspective, so that we have our marching orders and how we can go and strengthen it. And I know from experience that being an author, what you produce is a part of you. As much as your 
head tells you, I am me, my writing is my writing, I am not my writing, somebody criticizing my writing is not criticizing me, the, 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 that's logic. Logic and emotion don't speak the same language. And all you really hear is, I suck, I'm a horrible person, I've said all these embarrassing things that people are going to read the wrong way, that is not what I meant, it's being read out of context, and and it's a horrible feeling. So now I'm like, I just <laughs> want to close the show before Steve can say anything and be mad at me. But anyway, now I need to, to listen to what he says so that I know how I can do better too. And that is it for this week's episode of the Taylor <laughs> Stevens Show. We will be back again next Tuesday with Steve's response. <laughs>